My name is Georgiana. I am CEO and founder of BeagleCat, and soon you will be listening to Employer Branding, the Inside Podcast. In this podcast, I regularly talk to employer branding managers, talent acquisition managers, and human resources managers in tech companies in Germany, Romania, and the US. For more content on employer branding-related themes, go to employerbranding.tech or beaglecat.com. Stay tuned! Hi everyone, here I am today with a new episode of Employer Branding Be Inside podcast. My guest today is someone from Zalando, someone who works here in Berlin, but who has a history of having been living elsewhere, of having lived elsewhere as well. His name is Graham Quinn. Welcome and thank you so much for accepting to, to do this episode with me. And Graham is one of the employer branding managers at Zalando, but I'd, I'd like him to first introduce himself, if that's okay with you, Graham, and to tell us exactly what you do as an employer branding manager. Sure, that sounds great. Hi, everyone. I'm Graham, and I'm an employer brand manager at Zalando. What I do in my role is to identify and broadcast the unique opportunities of our culture to reach and continuously captivate that value-adding talent and help position Zalando within the global wider talent landscape. More holistically, I'm a globally experienced professional specializing in brand strategy, employer branding, marketing communications, and content management and development with over seven years in the marketing and employer branding space. Okay, Um, I'm wondering why you chose Berlin after Canada? of the boldest cities you could have come to. Um, so it's more about transferring my skills and being able to work on a recognized and established team within a well-established company uh, within the European landscape. So it's a few different factors, but um, I'm so glad to be here and it's, it's been a great learning experience so far. It's actually really interesting to me because I, I try to have as much guests from the countries that I'm, you know, mostly accustomed to, which are Romania, Germany, and and the U.S., because I've also traveled quite a bit to to the U.S. Um, so for me, each guest's cultural experience with employer branding is really, really relevant, and I think we have a lot to learn from it. So I'm I'm wondering, what's your take on this? Do you think employer branding is cultural? Is it just budget dependent? What what has your experience been in Germany versus or experience with companies in Canada, for example? Yeah, great question. Um, I think it's a few different things. I think it it, it depends so much. It's so unique to different companies um, because when you work, I've worked at companies where it was about 20 of us to now um, where I currently am, there's 10,000 okay. of us or 17,000 mm-hmm. of us, sorry. Um, it's you need it to be both. Um, so you need the buy-in from senior leadership. You need, you need sponsors to really kick off employer branding internally. Um, and that's not to say that you need budgets. I've, within my marketing career, I've had little budget before and was able to get things kicked mm-hmm. off, but mm-hmm. it's also against the goals and KPIs that you're working towards and what you're trying to achieve. And if there is um, budget there to help support you. So, it, again, it's also about the expectations the company has. Um, and so I would say that, you know, it is very dependent on the companies and 
has that uniqueness to it. Um, but I think the main thing is that it has to be cultural. You need buy-in from senior leaders. You need buy-in from employees. You need buyers buy-in buy from throughout the organization. Um, and I guess in terms of budget, it just really depends on how much you really want to move forward at a quick speed versus at a very little speed. Um, but at the end of the day, you do need some budget, whether it's graphic design or you know, even if it's just doing it yourself in Canva for free. Um, but there are a lot of different ways that you can go away the budget's dependent needs of an organization if you're working with little, very little, very little budget as well. Mm -hmm. so, so do you think it's a question of creativity in the end for these companies that don't have a big budget? Because we know so many successful campaigns from companies like, I don't know, Zalando or uh, Oracle even, or I don't know, Sofish and Cognite, whatever, these IT conglomerates. What does, what can a startup do? What can a small company do to have good employer branding in place? Aside from budget, of course. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I'm a bit biased in this sense because um, I feel like a lot of tech startups when it comes to employer branding or any other startup, there's a lot more wiggle room and a lot more freedom and mobility mm -hmm. exactly. to really move exactly. and pick things up with speed. So. I think it's really just trying to prioritize what you're trying to achieve and seeing, you know, going back to the drawing board to understand like what are our current problems, how can we solve it, and what do we really need to get kicked off of the ground. Um, and that's not to say that a lot of these employees, your coworkers, are going to have time and resource to help support you, but you know, as a team of one in, in a lot of these environments, you really do need support in some way and. You know, everyone has their own creativity, but it's nice to be able to rely on different organizations out there to connect with these individuals, get their ideas, um, and really take it from that approach because, again, it, it's one of those things where I feel like you can move a lot quicker in a, in a startup environment with employer brands, um, and there is a lot of unknowns there and how you're going to tackle things, but I think there's a lot more freedom in it, and it's always better when you go about it with other people outside of your company throughout the industry. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and what has your feeling been so far in Germany? You've, you've been here quite a while, right? And I have also been here about four years now. I'm wondering, are people in tech mostly attracted to tangible benefits or to company purpose? What, what would you say is the ratio or what has your experience been? Yeah, that's also a really great question. Um, I think it's. I think companies have a lot of misconceptions about really what tech talent are attracted to. Um, you know, I think we go back to about five years ago, even, and people, companies are focusing on ping pong tables and beer taps. When you know, when it comes to tech talents, if we're talking about like software engineers and whatnot, then it's. Of course, salary and comp has a certain allure to it, but at the end of the day, I also do think it's about what they're working on, how it connects to the company's vision and the individual's uh, mission, beliefs, and value system. Um, so I think it's one of those things, at least so far in Germany. I mean, especially in Berlin, Berlin's a very liberal city, and I feel like, especially in Berlin, a lot more individuals are kind of geared towards those companies that have their values aligned with their own. So it's more 
purpose-driven versus benefits-driven because um, there's a lot of tech startups in Berlin, a lot of tech companies, but at the end of the day, it's not so much the perks and benefits that are really attracting to them to them in that regards. I'd say it's more regards to, you know, I really believe in diversity or sustainability. Does this company really match my belief system um, and what it stands for and how I can help support it? So I think there's more of that cultural buy-in than I would say that financial aspect. Okay. Um, we, we wrote an article at some point about how to build a, a strong company culture or how we can attempt to build a strong company culture. And while writing it, we came across this interesting quote, which I'm going to read to you. High performance cultures don't happen organically. They're designed, architected and built with intention, your intention. Agree or disagree? Yeah, I think I think it's um, I would I think I disagree with that. I think from what I've seen, there's a lot of companies out there. You know, they're they're trying to build this culture within their own organization that emulates other companies' cultures. So you know, if you're a tech company, you want to be the next Shopify or you know the next Facebook, but you can't base your culture off of another company's culture, which is one thing, but at the end of the day, your culture isn't what you say it is. It's people's lived experiences within the organization. So um, I would say it actually happens more organically and you can have a guiding framework to say, this is our culture, but, and you can build it with intention, but then the day it is very much, you know, how it is internally, how your employees experience it, how, they navigate the company. So, you know, if you, if you're talking about transparency and your company is not transparent at all, then that's culture, you know, it's, it's not what you intend it to be, but it is the culture at the end of the day. So I, yeah, I would have to disagree. And I think it's just one of those things that companies might have to just shift their minds of on, in terms of their perspective, because yeah, at the end of the day, like your employees come here every day, they spend eight hours a day, it's how they shape that culture. It's how they buy into that culture and it's their lived experiences throughout. Exactly. So it may vary mm -hmm. by team and they vary by department, but it's, it just, there's a lot of factors at play, but at the end of the day, your culture isn't what you say it is. It's your lived experiences of your employees. Let's, uh, we tackled retention a little bit, but let's tackle also the concept of having an employee stock purchase plan. Does this work as a strong retention tool I haven't heard a lot about it. I think there's a few different ways companies can tackle it, but I think at the end of the day, it's the current economic situation or any economic situation. Um, you know, I've, I've worked at companies before where employees are given stock options um, and they invest at different periods. And, you know, so it might be a year, it might be three years, and you get the bulk of it maybe at five years. Um, and then I've worked at other companies as well, where, you know, you buy into the plan every month and at the end of the business quarter, you get your matching options. So it's a vesting period of three months. And I think there's a key differentiator between these two companies per se. So company A, you know, it's vesting every one, three, five years and then company B is investing quarterly. I think there's a harder buy-in option when you're talking about investing or working at company A because you don't really see the value or the benefits of staying for a year if only your 
award options are like a thousand euros per se. So it's and it's harder to do at three years and five years. So I feel I feel quite controversially that those stock options for companies who invest at one year and three years, it's really for the benefit of the company. Employees don't really see it because um, for tech companies, especially where this happens, employees aren't sticking around for three years and five years. They're most likely going to leave after two years. So it's at the end of the day, they're saving money. It's a cost saving measure. It's an attraction aspect, but then the day they're saving money, they don't have to pay for your pension. They don't have to pay for you know, if you're in Canada, your RFP or your IRA or your Roth. Um, so I think those companies are doing it very strategically in the sense of like, hey, come join our company. We have stock options, but in the day, you know, it's they're saving money. Um, and then you have the other companies like Company B, who's giving their employees stock options every quarter. And you are more invested in the company in that regard because, you know, you work more towards let's build a great company because I can see the results of this after every quarter. I get my options every quarter. Um, and that it's more costly for the business, but at the end of the day, it's a higher engagement rate within the employee stock purchase plan. Um, more employees feel engaged, connected to the brand, and really want to see the success of it. And so I think that's a better retention measure. Um, but I think what we can all see as well is, you know, we look at other companies who've had their stock, tech stock options cut in half. They've lost growth within the past year to the current economic situation. You know, does it even make sense to offer stock when stock tech stocks were overvalued to begin with? They've dropped significantly within the past year. So it's... Yeah, exactly. And we've all heard these horrific stories of companies not... not a dime in the end to people who were so who were promised so much in terms of stock ipo status um you know i see a lot of unicorn companies saying that too you know or like we're berlin's biggest tech unicorn or canada's biggest tech unicorn and you know you're, that's great and all but that's not a retention measure because it may never get to ipo status you know you may never even see your stock options vest you really have to believe in the products um but I'm also at the age where I care more about my retirements and receiving a monthly allotment, a monthly company match to that versus stock options that may cut in half, the price stock price might cut in half, or I might never even get them. I care more about, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very boring in that sense, but I'd rather have a company match my contributions to my, my retirement fund or my pension and see the results of that, you know, in 10, 15 years uh, or 20 years. But I think it's still one of those cases where we haven't really reached that stage yet. Um, and ESPP plans are still kind of seen as a gold standard, mm -hmm. um, but it'll be interesting what happens when we come out of this current economic cycle. I think it's, I, in the end, in my opinion, at least, it also depends on on the type of person to which you're directing this messaging mm -hmm. and to whom you're targeting ESPP, because I see it happening with people who are younger, who are more eager to take risks. They don't really mind working longer hours and receiving less money as long as they have a stake in the company, you know? So. Yeah, and that's, uh, yeah, and that's another great point as well. Um, you know, if we're talking about the younger, gener like younger generations who are just starting <laughs> to get into the workforce, 
I, I don't know about the European schooling system or education system, but in North America, like you don't learn much about finances no, when you're in high school, um, not, not budgeting, essentially. Not much. So when it comes to, you know, stock purchase plans, employee stock purchase plans, a lot of these individuals don't really know what a vesting period is, exactly. what's, you know, cliff, cliff periods are. What it even they, means. You know, they're yeah. exactly. And it's, you know, it wasn't until my third or fourth company, um, I worked for like a well-known multinational brand and it wasn't until after I left that I realized that I missed a great opportunity to invest in a company stock because I wasn't aware of the terms. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's also another fault of these uh, stock purchase plans is that they don't really have a great awareness level of, to what these different terms and definitions really mean for the employees that, you know, if you invest so much, you get so much back. And I think that's still another area of um, education, especially with like, you know, company pensions. A lot of people don't understand the free, free money that's sitting there right there, sitting in their lap if they just contribute mm -hmm. the minimum. So say a com company says you contribute 50 and we'll give you 50 as well. Like that's free money sitting on your lap. And I think that there just needs to be more awareness and education to both, you know, employee stock purchase plans, the definitions, how they work, as well as even like pension plans and how it's free money just waiting there for you in terms of you contribute as much as well. I, I think it, it would, for me at least, would be questionable if the company offered these opportunities for stock, but didn't really explain a lot what's behind them and wouldn't be completely transparent about them. That would make me wonder mm -hmm. if maybe there's something hidden. Maybe they don't see themselves as having the successful opportunity of, I don't know, being sold or acquired by someone else, or I don't know, my, my stocks won't, won't, go, won't get anywhere at some point. This is what I would think. Yeah, and I think that's a valid concern. I've actually seen companies come into the marketplace where you can sell your employee shares to these companies, um, you know, in case you don't have the confidence that it's going to go anywhere. Um, it's essentially opening up this pre-IPO market for company stocks. Um, so I think that's a real concern. And I think these days it's flip or flop. But if, you know, like Airbnb was a big, you know, before they went, I went to IPO status, you know, it was a very big risk. And, you know, it's, you just have to be comfortable with that. I think at the end of the day, it's like, do I really want to, take this massive amount of risk and go with these stock options that may never vest or go to IPO status, yeah. or do I rather just take something more stable? Um, and at the end of the day, like it comes up to the individual person to decide that. I think so too, but it's, it's anyway, it's something that I, I personally didn't give a lot of thought to and I certainly will. Mm -hmm. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look into this or maybe even write a, write something about it. Which companies do you, yeah. do you admire for their employer branding policies, Graham? Uh, yeah, I think it's, I don't know if it's so much about policies. I think it's just, I'm taking like a very keen eye right now to these companies who have built employer brand teams and how they navigate these waters of layoffs and redundancies. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples is Airbnb. Started the pandemic, they laid off a huge amount of their workforce. Um, 
but they did it and delivered it with such empathy at the core that it's been a great success for the company in terms of their employer brand efforts after the fact. Um, but it's also one of those things too, where I connect regularly with my practice, my fellow practitioners at various companies throughout uh, North America and Europe. And, you know, I refer friends and I hear about like negative stories about candidates not getting any feedback or whatnot. And it just makes me not want to work for the company um, based off of how they deal with their candidates. And so I think to kind of go back to your question, I don't know if I have any favorite company that I really admire their policies for or their vision. Um, it, it's also one of those things too, where it's like, at what point do you recognize it from the brand perspective versus, you know, the employer brand perspective, like Uber is a great example of brand perception, but you know, there's the negative connotation around being a delivery driver or a, a driver for Uber. Um, but then you look at Shopify and can't like, which is a Canadian success story and everyone wants to work for Shopify. It's a great employer brand, has a great consumer brands. Um, and they've handled their layoffs well per se. Um, but I just don't know if there is like any one company I would say that I would fully stand behind. Um, yeah, I think it's such a tricky thing and it just like depends on what they're going through and how they do it. But I've also seen great examples. I, I know now, now that I've actually um, stated the question out loud, it, it, it seems a little bit um, too hypothetical. Yeah. Because I, I see what you mean. I, I think it's very hard to form an opinion about a company based only on what you see from the outside. Even if you look at Glassdoor, even if you look at uh, all the other open, um, what are they called, all the other employee, uh, employee review websites, you might still not get a true feeling of what the company is like. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's very multi, multi, so to say. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of disagree there. I think being in the employer brand space, like you and I both are, um, we're aware of the strategies, we're aware of how companies do it. So I'd say that we're more hyper aware of like how companies are perceived. Like we have a, a fine eye, a keen eye to see like how it really is portrayed. Um, but I do think, yeah, to the like the general public's view, it's hard to see how brands really do it. Um, but you know, I've I've, I've admired certain employer brands at certain companies and I've had friends who've interviewed for positions there. Like I've referred friends to positions and they've never even be, they were never recognized. They were never called out upon. Um, and it just tainted my view of them as an employer and, you know, both yeah, as an employer and I would never really use their yeah. products to begin with. So it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah, but that that's also sort of sort of a personal experience with the brand, even if you've referred your friends to to the brand. And I'm I'm saying that because I I sort of changed my opinion on the topic this summer when I started to apply for jobs here in Berlin. I didn't apply for many jobs. I sort of did it just you know to to see if it gets me anywhere because I was looking for a change from entrepreneurship to a, to a full time job. And I have to say that after having mm -hmm. applied to five, six companies and having received the most 
typical, mm. boring, annoying replies from the majority, I've changed my mind and my opinion about a great deal of them. On the about others, on the other hand, I've changed my, my, my mind in a positive way when I received consistent feedback, although it was negative, but really well argumented and things that I actually could apply for my CV and for my future cover letter. Yeah, I've, I've definitely interviewed when I was in, looking for jobs a few years ago, I was definitely in that spot as well. I've, I interviewed with companies who had no idea what employer branding was, um, but they delivered such a great experience, such a great candidate experience. They were very human. Yeah, yeah. They got back to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think there's two other companies as well. You know, you have another company who knows what employer brand is. Well, they think they know what employer brand is and they just try and market their way through the system. They like, they make it like a magazine, you know, it's very glossy, it's very salesy and whatnot, but it's a terrible culture. And then like you mentioned, I think it's the other opportunities too, where people are aware of employer brands or obviously hiring for someone to help them with their employer brand. Their templates aren't great, but I think from our perspective, it's like, how much do I really want to, how much does this inspire me to really make this company better? Um, so it's that inspiration mm-hmm. aspect of like, how much can I change? Um, exactly. Yeah. So I think it just depends really per company, but, and how your personal experience is with it. And that leads me to our uh, last question because we're approaching the end of this episode. I'm wondering if so far in your career, there has been a project in which you feel you've accomplished a lot with employer branding or maybe a project to about which you feel very, very strongly or a project in which you would have acted differently from the point of view of strategy. Yeah, I think I think my biggest uh, projects I'm really keen on is really taking from the kin experience point of view and um, employee onboarding. I think those are the two first steps within the employee life cycle that really can deliver a lot for employer branding mm-hmm. and that I feel most passionate about because at the end of the day, we're humans and we should be, you know, we should be treated as such in terms of the recruitment process. Yeah. Um, I was a recruiter in my previous role as, lo- as well as an employer brand manager. And that's always what I strive to deliver to my candidates is feedback consistent feedback consistent status updates and that really because it's one of those things where that's setting the stage to the employer brand that's the first tangible interaction the candidate has with your employer brand is the can experience throughout the recruitment process um and to that point as well from there once you get hired you go into onboarding and poor onboarding experiences have shown to be a key factor for high turnover rates within the first six months because they make it or break it right after the the exactly you say i want to work here or i'm I'm out of here in a while (laughs) exactly and i've i've had friends who work for these major world-renowned brands and you know looks great on their cv and they've texted me and they're just like oh i've i had a really terrible onboarding experience i was just left to figure things out on my own and you, you know it's and I've had my own uh, share of experiences with poor onboarding. And it, it doesn't really make you, it do, you don't feel connected to the brand, you don't feel engaged, you don't feel bought in. Um, and I think there could be a lot of value there in terms of improving it. So you get that buy-in before they even join from day one. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's just one of those things where a lot of work can be done. And I think that's where I would really start and where I'm really passionate about starting in terms of getting companies aware of it is 
there's so many little wins that you can do that can really help set up the stage for bigger wins down the road in terms of employer branding activities that you do. I, I think so, and I, um, I I was thinking the same, you know, because I'll, I'll be starting this this new role as employer branding lead, and of course I haven't been onboarded yet because I haven't started, but I have all these thoughts running through my mind. I could do this, and I could mm-hmm. do that, and I could focus on this, and I could focus on that, but but in the end, I think you cannot focus on everything, and you cannot change everything, and you cannot yeah. do everything. So, yeah. but it it makes a lot of sense that you put effort and thought into the onboarding process because once you make that person feel human you'll probably increase your retention rate and that's something that so many companies struggle with here in berlin you hire them and then you they yeah. hire them then they leave you hire them then so you're constantly looking for replacements and it's like a like one of those games that to me um, sounds very funny because there's a lot more companies could do and they don't and, yeah. especially yeah, especially in Berlin, because it's it was complete culture shock to me that, you know, it's a three months typical notice yeah. period is three months. Yeah, exactly. That was that was a huge shock to me. Where back home it's two weeks, um, and so there's a greater chance for those people to drop out of the, the process, say mm-hmm. no to their offer before they even join, and yet it's still not a huge consideration for these companies to even focus on the onboarding. You know, it's mm-hmm. like we'll just leave them alone for three months after they say yes, and then we'll start onboarding them from day one, but I think they're missing out on a key opportunity to really get that employee engaged from day, before day one, really. Once again, thank you. And I look forward to meeting you in person at some point. Well, yeah, thanks again uh, for having me here. And it's been a pleasure to be a guest on your podcast.